Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 30th, 2014, and my guest is Paul Sabin, professor of history and American studies at Yale University. He coordinates the Yale Environmental History Working Group and helps to run Yale's undergraduate environmental studies major. He is the author of The Bet, Paul Ehrlich, Julian Simon, and Our Gamble Over Earth's Future, which is the subject of today's episode. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me on. The bet is a portrait of two men, Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon, and a very interesting bet that they made. But it's more than that. It's the portrait of an era, the birth of the environmental movement, and how it evolved over time. But let's start with the two men. Sketch out the arc of their lives and their careers. They were similar in certain ways, but very different in others, as you explain. So start with their views on population and resource scarcity, which is where they clashed. How did they differ there? Sure. Well, Paul Ehrlich is the uh, is a biologist uh, who studied bu- butterflies and has had a long career at Stanford University. And he uh, is best known for his 1968 blockbuster book called The Population Bomb, uh, which warned that pop- overpopulation, population growth was going to lead to food scarcities, famines, uh, possibly w- thermonuclear war, a spread of disease, a variety of different types of disasters. And uh, he was brought to the even more to the national consciousness, I guess, uh, when he was invited onto the Johnny Car- onto Johnny Carson's show in 1970 and became a very frequent guest on the on the Tonight Show. And he, he is a very witty, uh, combative, uh, good debater, just uh, conversationalist. Uh, and so he has been a spokesperson for uh, for a certain perspective on uh, the dangers of, of, of overpopulation and of uh, envir- the, you know, the risks of environmental and even societal catastrophe. Um, and yeah. Julian Simon is an economist, or he was. He, he passed away in the late in the late nineties. And uh, he originally he started out. Uh, Concerned about population growth as well, but then he he came to believe that in fact population growth uh, could really should be seen as as a goal of society in the sense that uh, more people living fruitful lives would be would be a sign of uh, societal progress. And he came to feel that based on his study of uh, of economics and the economics of population that population growth would not lead to disaster. In fact, hum- more people would lead to more ideas. And uh, he was a big believer in, in the potential of, of markets uh, to solve environmental problems. And, uh, you know, so that's, a, that's a little, you know, I guess a sketch of the two men. It just is an interesting backstory. Uh, they were born in the same year in 1932, and they actually grew up about five, five, a uh, few miles apart from each other in suburban New Jersey. Both men were Jewish and, uh, uh, they had sort of a, a as part of a, a movement of Jewish intellectuals into into the ac- academy, uh, and uh, so so there's some very interesting parallels in their in their lives, uh, more on the personal side as well. So I was born in 1954, and in the early 70s, I, I was a pretty avid watcher of Johnny Carson for a, maybe a few months of my life, maybe a year or two. <laughs> I, I can't remember. I don't remember Paul Ehrlich being on there, but. He was on there an enormous number of times. You said, I think. I think it was more than uh, I think maybe more than twenty. So yeah, that's that's <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, why do you think that was? 
you usually well, don't that you usually usually don't get that many biologists on the Johnny Carson. No, show. you don't, and and so I mean that's really uh, one of the you know the distinguishing characteristics of Paul Ehrlich is his uh, his his you know his wit, his com- his conversational style, his energy that he brings to uh, to the presentation of his point of view, and he was a very engaging speaker and. Uh, 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 you know, debater and discussant, and I think uh, Johnny Carson, you know, just liked having him on there. And and the other aspect was that Carson actually believed, you know, sided with Ehrlich on 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 the issues and thought that population growth was was a very significant problem, and he wanted to have Ehrlich on to talk about population and environmental uh, issues. Talk about the men's personalities. Uh, in certain ways, they had some things in common. I think so. I, th- I think so. They they. Uh, well, both were passionate intellectuals, workaholics, <laughs> really dedicated to uh, to their scholarship. Although at the same time, both men also believed that, that they wanted to have an impact beyond uh, the scholarly realm and, and sought to have an impact on public policy and public debates about about the issues that they were concerned with. Uh, I, I write in the book about uh, how, in some ways, you know, I, I I started the project thinking that these two men were would be so different from each other because. They took such different positions on the issue of population growth and and resource scarcity, but I came in the end to think that they had a lot more in common than I uh, than I had realized at the at the outset. In that they both, uh, you know, really uh, took very strong uh, positions and uh, and they were they were very good at articulating their their perspective, but not as good at incorporating uh, dissonant voices or contrary perspectives. Uh, and so I, I sort of set them out as being representative in some ways of the of the growing polarization of of discussion around environmental problems in the United States, and that and they both you know fed into that in, in a sense in the way that they approached sort of the verbal combat of the public realm. Yeah, they were both extremely combative. Uh, it, it seemed to me, from what I know of the two of them and what I learned from your book, uh, and that seems well. Later, we'll get into how that continues today, but but it clearly started the the combativeness and the lack of um, curiosity about why you might be wrong uh, seemed uh, to be clear. Both men, they both were very self confident. I think that's right. And usually self-confidence is a flaw unless you're right. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that maybe maybe in a little bit. But let's go a little deeper on the population and resource uh, scarcity issues. So how did Ehrlich – Ehrlich is what, what some would call a doomsdayer. Um, I guess that some would call. He, he was extremely pessimistic about what population growth and the trends that he observed at the time were going to do to, to human uh, experience on the earth not just in America, but on the entire earth. Uh, what was what was the essence of his worries about population and resources? Well, Ehrlich was one of uh, a group of biologists in, in the uh, post-World War II period. He was studying uh, the populations of, of of different kinds, different species, in his case, primarily butterflies. And they were studying the, the ebbs and cycle, ebbs and flows of populations in relationship to resources. And uh, and, and then projecting from what they studied in other creatures onto human populations. And so when they saw uh, populations of uh, butterflies, for instance, crashing uh, in, in uh, following a, a decline in uh, you know, available resources, they then projected that onto the human population, saying that, uh, that, that, uh, that overpopulation uh, would then lead to a, a kind of a population overshoot, which would then be followed by a population crash or collapse. Uh, and so that was really the model that was that they applied to human societies, 
And uh, uh, so Ehrlich, uh, I, mean, I guess that, that that's really the essence of it, that 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 you know that more people were going to lead to uh, greater consumption and that uh, ultimately we were going to you know, overstretch uh, our demands on the Earth's resources. Uh, at a certain level, it seems undeniably true. The Earth is a finite right. – the, assuming we stay on the Earth, which let's let's assume that, the Earth's a pretty mm-hmm. finite place. There's, there's only a limited amount of, of volume to it. There's a, certainly, it seems, a, a limited amount of stuff. So with every passing year, there's less stuff left. Um, but Julian Simon didn't see it that way. What was his view? Right. So I think Simon – the, the, the aspect that Simon added on to this was the the – you know, both the element of human ingenuity and creativity that people are different from other creatures in the sense that we have uh, social institutions, including the market, uh, that allows us to allocate resources and to, to uh, that that encourages creativity and development and innovation. And uh, so he his his belief was that uh, that scarce it, it was really an, an economist's point of view uh, that scarcity. Uh, leads to uh, higher prices. Higher prices lead to a call for more in- innovation, for for more you know uh, substitutions uh, or uh, uh, you know other kinds of new developments, and and that then uh, the prices would go down. So he, so rather than seeing sort of a linear uh, decline from going from abundance to scarcity, uh, Simon had a more a more malleable model of of, of abundance and scarcity being in dynamic relationship uh, with each other. Uh, and that this really depended on what what he called the ultimate resource, which was the human mind, uh, which allowed people to come up with new new kinds of resources. And so he liked to uh, uh, talk talk about that about about how uh, about about the invent the creation of new resources that we that we that we don't act, resources aren't finite because we can find substitutions for them, alternatives to them, or or ultimately uh, we can find uh, other ways to create them. So in some sense. This is a clash between two worldviews, um, and we'll, maybe we'll talk later about peak oil, but I, a lot of listeners out there urge me to read about peak oil and become more familiar with the arguments, and, and I tend to respond with a Simon-esque argument that uh, we're always running out of oil. Uh, the peak part of it isn't what's important. What's important is that there isn't enough to go around anytime. Uh, we'd always like more of it. We'd always like to use energy in different ways if it were cheap. The it's not cheap, of course, and as it gets scarcer, the price tends to rise, and as you point out, we tend to find substitutes. So I've always been skeptical about the uh, the importance of peak oil, and I think the engineers, uh, the geologists, and those who are worried about resources, and in cases of Ehrlich, the biologists, have a very different way of looking at this problem relative to the economists. Both men uh, weren't alone. A lot of other people supported Ehrlich. A lot of other economists uh, supported Simon's view. Uh, but going back to your summary of Simon, uh, which sounds nice, substitutes, markets work, innovation, what would Ehrlich's response uh, have been to that? What, what did he say in, in response to the economists' confidence that human ingenuity would overcome these problems? Uh, well, I think that that's uh, yeah really gets the interesting divergence in their worldviews, and it's really about a, a world historical view, uh, because Simon would look back and say you know over hundreds of years and say look we we've been able to continue to lower prices and to uh, continue to innovate. We haven't you know Malthus was predicting we were going to run out of food hundreds of years ago, and now we're feeding you know billions and billions more people, uh, and so looks back and says what happened in the past is going to continue into the future, uh, whereas someone like Ehrlich 
is thinks about a linear view of history in the sense that uh, 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 that we he, his belief that we're coming to the end of a, a phase of history uh, fueled and particularly by fossil fuels, uh, but but also by by other resources that that humans have have called upon from 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 the planet. Uh, and that we're we're coming to the end of that, we're, and we're now going to run out. That things are things things uh, this, this abundance can't uh, continue. And I think it's an interesting, a very interesting question, and kind of bet about the future, about about how we should think about where we are right now. Is, is this the uh, is this the end of a of a long period of time of abundance that that uh, was just a one time thing, or is this kind of an ongoing? Uh, ability to continue to generate new resources. Uh, so I think Ehrlich's response, to, to get back to your question, Ehrlich's response would be to say, you know, that worked in the past, but it's not going to work in the future. You know, the uh, uh, the science can't keep up with the demands the, that there are. Uh, we can't keep uh, the, the the planet can't produce as much food as gonna, as is going to be needed. That we're living on essentially living on the capital rather than on the interest of. Uh, uh, nature's capital on the planet, and that it it just can't be sustained. That it's it's been a a one time boom, basically, that is uh, going to come to an end. Uh, before we go on, I want to say something about Malthus. Uh, we have a nice essay on their the site that hosts uh, Econ Talk, which is the Library of Economics and Liberty. The essay is by Morgan Rose about how Malthus has been misunderstood. He um, he basically argued that there was the potential for famine, disaster, uh, because food supply would never keep up with uh, population growth, and and he's been criticized by moderns by saying he didn't foresee the explosion of productivity and the production of food, which of course is true. But his book was mainly about why, despite the seeming uh, likelihood of famine, it didn't happen. And his argument for that was that humans could control to some extent. There were natural limits and human limits on population growth that uh, averted the disaster that that might otherwise happen. But Ehrlich and his uh, contemporaries, uh, they didn't hedge their bets. Um, they were adamant about how disastrous not just the future would be, but the very near future. So talk a little bit about some of the predictions that Ehrlich and his um, uh, folks on his side made in the, in the 60s and 70s. Well, I, you know, some of the predictions were about uh, widespread famines that were going to occur. There was a book called uh, Famine 1975 about massive famines that were going to sweep the sweep the world by seven, by 1975. That we were going to uh, run out of oil by the early 80s. Uh, that uh, uh, you know, so I mean, it, it was about imminent imminent decline. Uh, it, it was not on the. It was this wasn't something that was going to happen hundreds of years, a hundred years from now, but rather it was going to happen within five, ten, fifteen years. And, and it was always just over the horizon. And 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 actually, what's interesting about that is that although uh, on the one hand you could say that Ehrlich was an immensely pe- is an immensely pessimistic person, on the other hand he would say uh, I think that he's actually very optimistic because he believes that something could still be done about these uh, about these problems. And that was why he continued to be active in the public sphere. It wasn't because he wanted to. Uh, predict that disaster was going to happen and, and just let everyone know about it and, so that then he would be right that he had made the right prediction that, about disaster, but rather that he, he believed that he could, he could still warn people in time. Uh, so I think that's an interesting, interesting element about the pessimism and optimism that, uh, that Ehrlich wasn't so far pessimistic to think that it was hopeless. He actually uh, believed that, it, that, that uh, something could be done, and that was why he was motivated to, uh, to speak out. So just to be clear, though, the when people say talk about say the rising price of energy in our time 
they'll say something like, well, growth rates are going to fall. We're going to have to lower our standard of living if we don't prepare for it. And economists tend to be skeptical of those kind of catastrophic, costly, I should say, not catastrophic effects. But Ehrlich was was talking about catastrophic effects. When you say a famine, he predicted millions and millions of deaths from uh, resource shortages, correct? That's correct. No, I mean, and, and actually he continues to, to think that this is about to happen, that we're going to face some kind of civilization-wide collapse. Uh, and, and so this is, uh, this is on a grand scale. And, and he put out numbers of what he thought the sustainable population could be on the planet, which are more around the, you know, around the level of you know, 1.5 billion people or a billion people, uh, various numbers. But that uh, the, and the idea there is just that there's just way too many people to be sustained on, on, on planet Earth. And, uh, and it's either going to be – the number is either going to be reduced through sort of deliberate population control uh, activities, uh, reducing, reducing birth rates, uh, and, uh, or, or there's going to be a catastrophe of death rates. Yeah, and there's a certain um, – you identify um – Ehrlich with Cassandra, the the prophetess uh, who was you know prophesying um, bad things happening in the future, who was uh, was ignored. Correct? She was ignored. Right? So, is that right? So, in some dimension, yeah. in some dimension, Simon's Pollyanna. Uh, now, I say that being a sympathizer with Simon, uh, but it reminds me uh, if, if all goes well with Econ Talk, this episode with you, Paul, is following on a an interview on. Uh, an issue we've talked about a number of times here at EconTalk, which is the future of employment and human well-being in the face of artificial intelligence. While most economists will, will argue that in the past, technology has always led to higher productivity and more jobs of a different kind as substitution was made and people found ways to take advantage of the fact that they now had machines to do things for them they used to have to do themselves. Suddenly, there's this fear in the economics profession that 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 process is not going to continue, that there's something different about artificial intelligence. And I see the same parallel with these doomsday uh, arguments about in our time, it's climate change. Uh, in Ehrlich's time, it was overpopulation or look at Simon. You know, the issue is, well, in the past, these substitutions and market forces turned out OK, but but this time is different. This is going to be – it's like you say, it's the end of this linear process and now we're in a new era where where nothing is going to – bail us out of this problem. And it's interesting how hard it is to have confidence in a process. So if you're like Simon or like myself who tends to be optimistic about the ability of the price system to deal with these kind of things, you do have to argue that, well, it's always worked out before. Now, there's in a way that's a certain naive view. In a way, it's not naive because it's based on an understanding of the underlying process. How do you see that that distinction? Do you think it's naive or do you think it's thoughtful? I think that's a fascinating way to put it. I think it is the real dilemma and challenge that we face in thinking about this story because on, on the one hand, these processes have been effective in the past in generating responses to the problems, uh, various kinds of problems that we face and the need to generate more resources, generate more food, and, and we, to all appearances, we've, we've been successful in the past and, and therefore we should be successful, one would think, uh, in the future. And I think that that one can have a fair amount of confidence in, in those processes uh, uh, unfolding in a similar way in the future. And so that's sort of the, the optimistic take. Uh, where it gets more Pollyannish is, is whether is when one, one uh, I, I guess, is uh, when one takes one's level of confidence 
uh, about the processes and says, therefore, we don't need to worry about certain kinds of uh, problems. Uh, and I think the, the, the problem with that vantage point is that it's, 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 it's actually the worrying about the problems and the concern about the problems that often generates the kinds of solutions that uh, people like Simon have celebrated. And so, you know, this is something that I uh, uh, worry about related to the issue of climate change, where there is, uh, uh, in many quarters, a reluctance to, uh, to see climate change as being a problem. Uh, and that, I think, is in, its, is in itself uh, sort of uh, holding back the very kinds of market forces and powers and ingenuity that someone like Simon celebrated from, from being brought to bear on, on a problem that I, th I think is solvable, but only if it's recognized uh, as something that, uh, that exists. So I think that there's an interesting balance uh, there between one's pessimism and one's, and one's optimism about, about the future, uh, that if you're just unduly optimistic, then, uh, then you may, may be caught off guard by, by, and not really be preparing for genuine things that may be out there. And, and then the other aspect of that is, is, uh, you know, is, is just, is making uh, how we, a lot, how we uh, compare past, past types of issues to, to future types of problems. Uh, and so one concern that I have, again, going to the climate issue, is, uh, is, is whether when we say that climate change is the same as population growth, I think that there's a bit of a, uh, uh, I think that's a little erroneous in terms of how we think about those two issues, because we're able to respond to population growth in a multitude of different ways by generating more food and tapping a wide range of different kinds of resources and deploying all different kinds of market forces. Whereas climate change is uh, external to the economy to, the lar to a lar large extent. Uh, and so without some uh, societal force to bring into the economy, there's really no uh, market pressures that are going to uh, be brought to bear except in the area of adaptation, uh, where, of course, if the climate changes, people will adapt in a variety of ways, but uh, not in mitigation. So sorry to be a little long-winded no, on no, that. No, no, that's very well said. Issue. Yeah, it's very well said. I, I had a similar thought as you were talking about it, which is that there's a big difference between market forces, using market forces, or use, a better way to say it would be say using incentives. So a policy change we could put in place if we're worried about climate change is a carbon tax that would change the incentive to use carbon-based energy, say. That's not a market response, though. The market response, because as you point out, it, it's a global phenomenon. Uh, it has huge external effects. So it's not – the market itself isn't going to mitigate the problem. What the market's going to do is mitigate the effects of the problem potentially. And again, that's the same right. debate that we're going to have about this or we have about this issue, which is some of us are optimistic about the ability of humans to respond to it. And of course, if you think all you know, wildlife's going to be knocked out and 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 there's going to be mass extinctions because of climate change, the fact that we can cope with that through, say, three-dimensional holographic experiences of, of fake uh you know wildlife that's not very that's not very comforting i don't i don't you know i don't like yeah. that that that's not appealing if that's the nature of it it's going to be a bleak and un, and an unsatisfying future so it, it is a uh but it is in this area of where we don't really know what's gonna we don't know how we don't know how severe the problem is what fascinates me is that Ehrlich, either for personal uh, psychological reasons or for deep held beliefs still thinks he's right well, that that that's correct about the pop, about the population and, and resources uh, issue. I think that he does still feel that he's right. Although he, I think he has shifted also to a concern about a climate uh, as a new as a new fear. Um, but I think that is right, and it is a, it's a bit of a frustration of mine with uh, 
uh, you know, and I have this frustration with both sides of the conversation here, which is again, going back to where we started at the beginning of, uh, which is the uh, unwillingness or reluctance to, to hear the other side, to listen and to try to figure out how to develop uh, what I view as a, as a more complex and integrated worldview that takes into account both the insights of, uh, of Simon into the, you know, the function of the economy, Simon and the economists uh, into the function of the economy, uh, and also the insights of people like Ehrlich into the way that we're we're transforming the planet that 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 uh, uh, you know, that we are that we are having a broad based, wide ranging impact on uh, on the planet. Now, both men had considerable influence uh, on public policy and on political debate. Uh, let's start with Ehrlich. Uh, he and 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 the environmental movement in the late '60s and early '70s had some tremendous policy successes. Well, I think that's right. And I mean, I, it was, one could attribute it to Ehrlich, but also to a broad, you know, much larger number of, of people. And most of his policy successes, uh, to be more precise, you know, weren't really centered on the population growth resource scarcity. Uh, they, they tended, the, the policy successes of the environmental movement tended to focus more on uh, air pollution, water pollution, uh, 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 you know, the land management, uh, questions about how to, how to manage the national forests, uh, toxics, things like that. So they were actually in a much more pragmatic, uh, zone of, uh, activity than in the kind of big, broad question about the, the, the fate of humanity. Uh, and, and so Ehrlich actually did, came under some criticism from some, uh, more policy oriented people about, about how, you know, how can you come up with, uh, uh, ways to solve the, uh, Problem of air pollution with tax, you know, with with, with taxes and uh, emissions credits and things like that. When someone is is you know predicting the apocalypse is about to to happen, and so there's an interesting question I think for historians to wrestle with about how how did the the more extreme uh, and uh, more extreme perspectives of someone like Ehrlich uh, contribute to the more pragmatic policy advances that were occurring in Congress and in the, in the state legislatures. And so I think it's an open question about how those two things uh, were related to each other. And also then when one thinks about the reaction to the environmental legislation of the 1970s, how much of the reaction was to the pragmatic aspects of the legislation and how much was it to the sweeping claims that people like Ehrlich were making about imminent doom and, and all that. Uh, so when one, one thinks about the reaction, how much, you know, which, which was the real genesis of it. Talk about the principles of uh, Jimmy Carter and the Carter administration and how they were buffeted by these political um, wins, uh, sometimes with some success on their part, but often uh, – leading to some really unpleasant political consequences for Carter and obviously in the 1980 election. So talk about the Carter administration and how the Reagan – how Ronald Reagan opposed those – some of those ideas. Right. So I, I see Carter and Reagan in some ways lining up uh, – not exactly, but lining up to some – you know, with the Ehrlich-Simon uh, divide. And I, and I sort of think that's interesting too because Ehrlich and Simon made their bet in – or, uh, the actual bet they made was in uh, 1980, right around the time when the election was was happening, and so that's striking. So Carter is uh, uh, Carter was was a real believer in Ehrlich's uh, point of view, the the, the threat of scarcity that it, and uh, uh, he he really put energy energy policy, the idea that we were going to run out of oil uh, or or that we we risk that um, at the center of his presidency is one of the main the main issues that he was grappling with. And so I think that he was trying to bring that sensibility in of, of limits uh, and the need to make do with less 
learned to live with less into into his presidency, uh, and it, with with mixed success. Uh, obviously, many cha- many political challenges in trying to to do that. You know, more symbolically, he did it as well. You know, with wearing his sweaters and long underwear and turning down the the heat in the uh, uh, in the White House. There's a funny story that telling the book about how he turned down the air conditioning in the uh in in the white house in the summer and it was so hot that some of the people would would put their uh their lamps next to the thermostats in their in their offices to try to uh give the give it the impression that it was even hotter than it was to try to get the air conditioning to uh to turn on um but so you know symbolically and politically he 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 embraced the the Ehrlich view now now i should say though that again he, you know, this is the president uh who's at the center of many conflicting uh, political uh, pressures, and so you know, Carter also was a deregulator, in, uh, you know, an early deregulator in uh, related to uh, uh, some of the so, some of the different aspects of the economy, appointing Alfred Kahn to be uh, head of the Civilian Aeronautics Administration, for instance, to try to de- start deregulating the airlines, uh, and so so it's not such a hard fast. Lineup between the uh, you know Carter I guess is a complex political individual I guess to say so uh, but Reagan is interesting as uh, uh, in response you know when he announced for president he denounced uh, people like Ehrlich and, and also the authors of the study limits to growth that had come out in 1972 he denounced anonymous uh, experts who said we had to learn to live with less and uh, and on the campaign trail he you know responded to uh, a report that came out at the end of the Carter administration called Global 2000 which predicted a wide variety of different kinds of disasters that were expected by the by the year 2000 and uh, reagan said you you know we don't we don't need to worry about those things and he kind of referenced malthus uh and said that well we had pesticides and uh and and uh fertilizer and things like that that allowed us to produce more food so so reagan really lined up on on the other side uh there and that, you know, so that, that and embracing Simon's type views of uh, population uh, issues. So let's let's move to the bet. Uh, the bet itself. It's it's quite an extraordinary uh, moment in intellectual history. Really, uh, I don't know. There must be some precedent for it. But here are two public figures widely associated with extremely different views, and somehow they came to put their money where their mouth was. Uh, so how did that come about? It is a rare, a rare thing for that to happen. Usually, people talk talk around each other or at each other, but to actually uh, shake hands on a bed, or they didn't actually shake hands, but to agree on the terms of a bed is unusual. So it came about because early uh, Simon had you know, Simon had for much of his career been sort of uh, isolated, fairly marginal, uh, working at the University of Illinois uh, in Urbana, and and and, and he. Uh, but he he finally got out and, and, and published an article in Science that attacked Ehrlich and others as doomsayers and saying that they uh, he criticized the tendency towards false bad news about the environment and about resources. Ehrlich responded, and then they continued this scholarly debate in another journal, the Social Science Quarterly. Uh, and Simon finally, you know, said to Ehrlich, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Let's let's make a bet. Uh, and so they, he Ehrlich and two colleagues of his um, selected five. Uh, medals to uh, and 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 what they did was they they selected a bundle of these five medals, uh, the two hundred dollars worth of each of them, and they were uh, nickel, tin, uh, tungsten, uh, chromium, and copper. Uh, and the idea was that you they would wait for ten years uh, and to see whether the prices had gone of those medals had gone up or down, and the loser would pay the difference. So say the bundle was worth a thousand dollars in 1980, and if they had gone up. 
doubled in price on average, then uh, Simon would have had to pay Ehrlich a thousand dollars in 1990, and if they had had dropped uh, to an average of 500, then Ehrlich would have uh, and his group would owe Simon 500 dollars. So that was the uh, essence of of the bet, and then but they was, uh, then it, they it was corrected for inflation, which is important. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. How did they agree on how how to do that? Do you know? Uh, how to do what? How to correct for inflation. So the nominal prices, it, it, they were worth $1,000. They bought $1,000. They bought a mythical $1,000 bundle of five metals, $200 of each one in 1980. If if every price doubled, if every uh, every one of the metals doubled, they'd be worth – Two thousand. They'd cost two thousand dollars to buy that bundle in nineteen ninety, but they had to correct for inflation. They couldn't just. It wasn't the nominal increase in price that they bet on. They bet on the real increase. So right. They, they had. They must. You have, know, I'm not actually. I'm. I'm not actually sure what indexing uh, they used to uh, to make the correction. That's a good. Uh, good. That's a detail I was unable to uncover. That's a good. Okay, uh, but let's. Good okay. No problem. So, so what happened? In fact. Oh uh, well, well over the the course over the course of the decade, the uh, you know when when it came around to to settling up, the the prices on had fallen on average around fifty percent uh, across all the all of them had fallen, uh, and on average around fifty percent. And Ehrlich sent Simon a check for uh, five hundred and seventy six dollars and seven cents in an envelope with no note. <laughs> with no no that's right no congratulations no no congratulations no, no it was just uh he he acknowledged that he lost but wasn't going to go any further than that you know and i think that it's interesting to understand why did that happen over the you know why did why did uh why did Ehrlich lose and we should mention and, we should uh, mention that in that decade uh the world population rose from uh 4.5 million yeah 4.5 billion to 5.3 billion a rather significant increase, which should have, in Ehrlich's mind, pushed up the demand for these. The supply had to be getting smaller in his mind because there was a fixed amount of it. So they would get more expensive. That was the logic of his argument, uh, and it, right. didn't, it so didn't that, happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So that was the logic. More, more people will lead to a little more demand, will lead to the prices going up, and, that, and so there will be a clear relationship between population and prices and, and the decade – showed that that uh, clear relationship actually wasn't so clear and that there were other other things going on. And so I think it's interesting to, to look at what some of those uh, were. I mean, among them were, uh, you know, developments in the in, in copper, for instance, where you had substitutions, the kinds of things that Simon had talked about, substitutions for copper. You had satellites, fiber optic cables. You had developments in, in, uh, in the mines where uh, – um, you know, uh, related to labor, labor, labor strikes that, that had boosted prices at the end of the 70s being resolved. Uh, you had an international uh, tin cartel that uh, ultimately was, was broken and brought the prices came collapsing uh, down. It was unable to be sustained. So there are a whole variety of different sort of market, both scientific developments, uh, substitutions, and, uh, and then new sources of supply that were brought online. Uh, so all of those things uh, came into uh, uh, came into play, and it's important also to note you know that they had made their bet at, at a historically high moment in uh, commodity prices at the end of the 1970s, and so it was is supremely poor time to uh, to in retrospect to take that uh, to take Ehrlich's side uh, in the bet. Well, you have a fabulous chart in the book uh, that shows the index of those five metals. From 1900 to 2008 or 2010, so roughly a century of price behavior that, that we have data on, and I'm sure there's 
maybe some flaws about how that's measured. It's a challenge, yeah. but it's the best you can do, I assume. And what's fascinating about it is, is as you point out, there are many decades uh, between 1900 and 2010 where Ehrlich would have won the bet. Uh, well, that's right. And, and if you were to go back and to redo the bet from 1900 to 1910, 1901 to 1911, et cetera, so every 10-year uh, period, uh, Ehrlich actually would have won the bet uh, 63% of the time. So uh, so it is it is an, another reminder for people who favor Simon's point of view that uh, he wouldn't always have won this bet. And, and so it's a little misleading to take this one bet to, uh, as, a, as a statement of the larger point. At the same time, even Ehrlich's the 63% is a little misleading too, because much of that increase was following the uh, a, a plummeting of of commodity prices after World War One, and then just sort of a slow uh, return to higher levels over the course of that uh, you know of of that time period. Yeah, of, there's a 60 year World War One. Yeah, there's a 60 year period, 1920 to 1980, where the prices of the five metals basically doubles. Uh, but right. what's striking to me, what I found fabulous, the reason I love the, the chart is that, you know, Simon's view, if you want to caricature Simon's view, you'd say, well, human ingenuity always makes stuff cheaper and cheaper. And if that were true, if that were the only thing that mattered, uh, then you'd see a slow, steady decline over time for these five metals as we got better and better at getting them out of the ground, despite the fact that their remaining amounts are getting smaller. It's not what you see. What you see is a wild zigzagging dance with long periods of increase, steep plummets, et cetera, et cetera. But what's overwhelming, what's fascinating to me is that between 1900 and 2010, it's had pretty much unchanged. Um, right. So after all of the that stuff and after the world population, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but by 2010, it's 7 billion. And then I don't know what it was in 1900, maybe a billion. I don't know. It was a small answer, much smaller uh, the world price stayed constant, roughly. That is, human ingenuity basically canceled out the fact that the remaining supply was harder and harder to get to and was uh, scarcer. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that is the, <laughs> the, that is the genesis of, of our, you know, question about the future, you know, the bet about whether these which of these two competing elements will will prevail uh, going forward, or whether it'll just remain in some sort of level balance uh, uh, related to that? I mean, I think the, the other thing that's interesting about looking at looking at the chart of the prices rising and falling over this period is just is just a reminder of how a bet over commodity prices is really not clearly a very good proxy for for anything uh, that because there are so many factors that come to bear, whether it's you know labor labor strikes, uh, war, uh, uh, market market uh, you know cartels that are trying to control the marketplace, uh, a, whole, a whole variety of different things that that, that are shaping uh, what's happening with uh, with metal with commodity prices, uh, so that there really isn't a linear relationship uh, between population and and the commodity prices, which doesn't mean that population has no impact. Um, but it also means that those two are not in lot. They really don't work at all in lockstep with each other. Well, I want to come back to the point we talked about earlier, which is, um, well, the future is always uncertain, and therefore you can be pessimistic about it or optimistic about it, and both sides can can make claims about history, arguing on their behalf. Having said that, uh, the fundamental argument, and this may be just my bias, so I'm going to let you as a as a, a somewhat objective observer respond to this, um, 
the fundamental argument on the part of Ehrlich that human population growing against versus a fixed amount of natural resources, that argument is, is simply wrong. It's, it's logically wrong. It's easy for China and India to get more and more populous and be more and more prosperous. Now, it's possible that at some point there's going to be this – you have to argue there's some threshold effect. But those people – there are a lot of people who argue that what I would really call the simplistic version, which is, well, the more population, the less there is for everybody. You know, The more immigrants, that means fewer jobs for people or, or we're going to be poor or we're going to have to share our wealth. And at the root of a lot of these views, it seems to me, certainly the limits to growth argument, uh, is some kind of zero-sum understanding of how prosperity is, is generated and shared and created. And um, I don't think there's anything defensible about that argument, but maybe it's my bias. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think in the short term that it is it is wrong in the sense that uh, that the idea that adding another – 50 million people or 100 million people is, is going to lead to going off of a cliff that will then lead to uh, scarcity and disaster. I think that, that that is mistaken. I mean, I think that what's difficult about the way that Ehrlich and Simon tended to argue about these issues is that, is that they wanted to project out uh, as, as debaters or as intellectuals, they wanted to project out into the infinite future uh, and make claims that this you know, that you never would, uh, you know, on Simon's part, that there you could have almost infinite number of people on on the planet. And I think that that is a, uh, that gets into much more complicated, that's a more, much more complicated claim. I mean, I think the question about whether we are able to support the current billions of people or, uh, or whether in Ehrlich's point of view that we have to go reduce the population to a, a lower level. I, I, I argue in the book that this becomes much more of a question of values. It's about how, how do we want to live on the planet and uh, what, what does it take to sustain the numbers of people that we have rather than uh, the kind of the either or, you know, can we sustain them or can we or, or not? Uh, that which is sort of the, the, the yes, no, I think, version of, of, of population growth and its relationship to resources, I think, is not the most helpful way to think about it. It's much more a question of, you know, what does it take to sustain uh, the larger number of people? And that, and that does change our society, and it changes our relationship with the, with the planet. And, and it means that uh, – and, and, and that, that involves our values about what kind of world do we want to live in. So that's really what – you know, that's part of where I end up in the book, you know, arguing is that this is more of a question about social values, about the kind of world that we're trying to create and that we want to live in than it is about whether, you know, are we going to survive or are we not going to survive? How did Ehrlich and um, Simon's values differ? They they did differ. They weren't just disagreeing about how whether markets worked well or not. Well, I mean, I think that one difference had to do with how they thought about people and their role on the planet. And I think that uh, Ehrlich has tended to have a view of humans are one of many creatures on on Earth, and we have we have a claim to. The resources of the earth, but not the only claim. Maybe that uh, that, that and and he sees a va- had, had a value of of how to live on the planet that was one of har- of more of greater balance, a harmony, or or uh, humility on the part of humans that we would take a lesser maybe a lesser claim that there would be more space for other other creatures to be living. I think Simon's view was really about you know, people first. Uh, that that the goal of society was to be able to support a larger number of people on the planet, and that. And, and that the measure of the success of society was, could be taken in the numbers of people who were able to live productive uh, lives. And so uh, he often would, he would say, you know, that, that 
for him if he had to choose between uh, the claims of, na- you know, claims of nature or other creatures and the claims of people, he, w- he would favor the claims uh, of people. And so I think that's a very interesting uh, que- question that there's, you know, there's not a right answer. Uh, these are ethical questions that are, in, are, are subject to debate and to different, different values. And I once saw Peter Raven give a speech. You mentioned Peter Raven in your book. Uh, uh-huh. When I heard him, he had become the head of the St. Louis Botanical Garden, which is a lovely um, spot. Uh, but as the director, he, his views were uh, more like Ehrlich's than Simon's. Uh, his speech at one point, he said, if I remember him correctly, that it was immoral or at least destructive for Americans to have more than two children because that third child – uh, Americans consumed so many resources and were so wealthy that having a third child was putting pressure on the earth and, and the earth's resources. And the implication, if I, again, if I'm being fair to him, was that uh, there'd be less for everyone else. And um, I asked him, I told him that, that I was from a family of three children and that my younger brother, who was a <laughs> Extraordinarily delightful and entertaining. He could have been a criminal, I guess, and and then it would be a tougher <laughs> argument for me to defend. But I said my younger brother is warm and loving and and um, gives me a lot of pleasure, and I think his parents and his friends, and he seems a fine fellow. Are you suggesting that somehow he's a net negative because he <laughs> he makes a good living in the United States, which he does? Um, and I don't remember what he said, but I think the um, that perspective. There's a biological question there. Does an extra American make the world a poorer place? And I, I think the answer is no. Some people think yes. But but there's more than that. There is this human side that some people give value to and others less so about this contribution that a person makes above and beyond uh, his effect on the Earth's carrying capacity. Well, I mean, I think that encapsulates encapsulates a real difference between Ehrlich and Simon uh, right there. I mean, Ehrlich, a lot like, like Peter Raven – spoke a lot about the problem of Americans as super consumers, that they were consuming 10, 50, 20, 50 times as much maybe as someone born, this is 30 or 40 years ago, but someone born in India or China. That, and so, so that controlling population growth in the United States would have more of an impact uh, on, in lessening human demands, uh, consumption demands than, than even overseas. And the one thing I would cre- give them credit for that was, was, was that of some, some level of taking responsibility for American consumption and not just projecting it out uh, externally onto other countries, saying those people over there need to reduce their population. And so there was a, there's a sense of responsibility taking for the American impact uh, and American consumption. So I think that there's, there's something to be uh, – Commended there in in turn in in in, in that, um, but I think there is a, there is again a, a debate there. Yeah, Simon was much more. He spoke about the idea that who's to say whether the next person is going to be you know a Michelangelo and Einstein or or or, or even just someone who is going to leave, let it leave a happy productive life. And so he he favored the idea uh, that each each new life was a was was a blessing. I think Ehrlich's view was more uh, that the people who were alive that they had claims, but the un, that the people who didn't yet didn't exist or weren't being brought into existence that we didn't have to feel that they uh, that they that they had a claim to being brought into the world that it, that it was more uh, uh, you know he would ask you know how many people how many people do we need uh, what what to have a a good society uh, what what's the 
uh, what, what, what's the right number. And so I, it's an interesting, uh, that's again, an inter- very interesting ethical debate. And Ehrlich certainly, I think, contributed to shifting attitudes in the United States towards pop, you know, family size and, and, the, and, the, and how many people to bring into the world. Uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, people starting to have the idea that they would have smaller families. There are both economic reasons why they were doing that, uh, but also, uh, I think, questions about how many people they thought they were sort of entitled to bring into the world. I think that that was a cultural change that took place. Yeah, coming back to my brother for a moment, who is a fine fellow. <laughs> I'm glad that your brother is, uh, you know, exists. It's good to... Yeah. I'm sure there may be some people who disagree, but as far as I know, their their number is small. But um, what I was going to say is that I think Simon's point, which just to, to make it clear that he wasn't just making a point about resources, um, that my brother coming to the world didn't make the world poor. It actually made it richer. The fact that he lived in lives an American lifestyle or would live and has is living an American lifestyle isn't bad because he's producing a lot. He's adding an extra brain. And that's the ultimate resource. And to to look at what's going on at uh, the fact that he uh, eats, uh, say, hamburgers and uses up grassland is the wrong. That doesn't tell the whole story, right? So I, yeah, and Ehrlich would really Ehrlich and I think many environmentalists would sort of disagree with that kind of Simon's vantage point there. In and 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 I think that that is part of you know looking looking at the global demand on resources and and you know what's happening with the fisheries what's happening uh in the the clearing of the amazon forest to produce beef you know all all the various ways in which our escalating consumption uh has led to tremendous pressures on uh on the planet and with in some cases pretty devastating consequences for other other species and so i think that uh that the simon view that each individual uh, coming into the United States, contributing to the economy, bring, expanding the economy. Well, you know that that may be true in 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 some ways from that they're they're contributing and and they're bringing new ideas and they're and they're uh, they're productive individuals. But at the same time, you know the Ehrlich view, environmental view, there is we have we have to look at what what is the sum total of all of this that's of sustaining all of these people. What what is it doing to the planet? And uh, there are lots of metrics <laughs> that you could look at to say. You know that the stresses, the strains that are that the planet is under right now are, are very substantial, and that uh, um, you know there have been very significant consequences. It's a shame you can't interview the Earth and find out how she's feeling about <laughs> what it, think. how stressed <laughs> out she is. Uh, but you know, to, to give to give Ehrlich his due, um, there are ecosystems that are stressed by population, obviously, and and Simon's response would be, I think that. There's a problem of property rights. So fisheries are despoiled and ruined because people don't own the oceans. And the challenge there is how do you find ways to overcome that either voluntarily or through uh, regulation to reduce that kind of impact? In many other areas, the, the effects is, is zero or, or even positive. So there's certainly – Ehrlich is certainly right that in many, many cases when property rights don't exist in particular, that human expansion is is destructive in that way. Uh, and property rights are what preserve uh, stewardship. So I th- it's a, it's a fascinating fascinating uh, difference. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and Simon would certainly say it, it also in places where populations have grown very quickly and economies have not really been able to develop so rapidly to keep up in terms of productivity and, and uh, that that the main he would he would say that the principal problem there is not one of population growth, but it's one has to do with 
the rule of law of property rights of the ability of people to be productive, to keep what they earn and to be able to invest and to uh, build up the economy. And so that, yes, that certainly would be, uh, his, his explanation of those, uh, of those and of many, of many environmental uh, issues as well. So I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was extremely well written. It, it peels back, uh, the curtain to remind us of, of some of the things, those of us who are old enough to what happened in the seventies and goes uh, and gives us some nice, uh, information about what was going on behind the scenes and intellectually, and I really enjoyed the book. One thing that struck me about it is that it seemed eminently fair. But since I'm so sympathetic <laughs> since I'm so sympathetic to Simon and unsympathetic to Ehrlich, I, I wonder if um, it, maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's slanted toward Simon. Now, Simon won the bet, but as, we, as you point out, we've already talked about it. There are a lot of decades he would have lost the bet. The bet itself is, is not inherently valuable it's it's one data point it has information but it's not it doesn't end the discussion and Ehrlich in the 90s she point out won lots of awards was honored in many many ways he didn't slump off into the into obscurity because he lost the bet or that because his predictions were all wrong so uh, but you re- talk about all that and you talk about it very even handedly um where do your sympathies lie uh, where do they lie when you started the book if you could talk about that and why did you write this book <laughs> That's a great question. And so, so, you know, I, uh, I come from an environmental background in the sense of, uh, you know, devoted much of my career to studying environmental questions, environmental problems. And, and I believe that they are serious that, 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 and I, in terms of that, our relationship with, you know, with other animals and creatures or how we, how we live on the, on the earth is, uh, is sort of part of how we define ourselves and that there's that, um, and that I think that, so I, I sympathize greatly with Ehrlich and the identification, his identification of many of the concerns and uh, questions related to how the the pressures that we're putting on on the planet. Um, I think that, uh, and so I, I uh, but I was looking when I when I took on this project, I was looking for a story that would make me think, that would challenge me, and uh, and so that was part of what I was interested in, and and also was looking for uh, trying to. F- think through issues about how we relate our economic development and our impact on the on the environment think about how those two things are related to each other and so this was a great story because the characters were so strong and uh uh and you know dynamic and uh and there was uh you know it was a great great opportunity for telling this this tale i mean i think where where uh you know what where I come out, and I tried very hard to be balanced throughout through the book, and I say, I guess what what I was saying is that I think that we really need to find a way to learn from both of these individuals. So I don't actually side with entirely one or the other. I think that uh, the insights that Simon and many economists have had in terms of the power of markets and that adaptability are ones that I think environmentalists need to take uh, more seriously and figure out how to engage, incorporate uh, into their into their thinking. At the same time, I think that scientists. Such as such as Ehrlich have identified many challenges. They have played a crucial role, really, in in society. If you think about questions related to you know, nuclear fallout or the the chlorofluorocarbons in the ozone, uh, the way that they've identified these these threats to to society that that then we've been able to take action on. Uh, and I think that that's also true around climate. And so I think that now what we need what this, what we all we all uh, as opposed to these. Uh, these folks representing the two sides. What we all need to do is figure out how to bring these two these these ideas together and develop a more integrated uh, way of of thinking about environmental and economic problems. 
Did your views get challenged, though? Did you find the experience <laughs> of writing the book um, informative? I did. They, they, I, I did find it very challenging uh, and uh, and very interesting in trying to hold it balanced. And uh, you know, it was it was it was interesting though because because I come from an environmental a uh, bit of an environmental background. I, you know, in some ways, I was actually probably harder on Ehrlich than I was on Simon because uh, because it's easier to kind of go back uh, and and uh, be critical of uh, folks who are more on your, it's actually easier, some ways, sometimes easier to be critical to of folks on your own side or you know, where you know, can share values with you than it is because those are they're ones that you're trying to explain something to that you see. Uh, whereas uh, when, and so I guess in, if I, it, you know, I think the bat, my new project that I'm working on right now on the history of environmental law and environmental regulation is much more in the pragmatic zone of, uh, of, of environmental laws of the 1970s and regulation and their relationship to air pollution and water pollution. And I think that uh, that's an area in which, in, in my view, that you know, the environmental community has really contributed a tremendous amount to, uh, to improving the quality of life for Americans and cleaning up the air and the water at much, much less cost than was, was, was feared by many critics of those regulations. And so I think that uh, um, if, you know, that's another element of this story. You know, much of this debate between Ehrlich and Simon is at the is at the big conceptual level of the future of the planet. But when we're talking much more pragmatically about just the quality of the air that we're breathing, you know, I think there are different different conclusions that we can draw uh, on the different pers- you know these different the different perspectives, the different sides of the story. If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, but I want to talk about academic life for a minute. Uh, one of the things <laughs> that comes through in your book, it's a sub theme, is how. Uh, is trash talking by intellectuals about each other, uh, and Simon was much more the victim of that. And he didn't take it very well. I think it was very hard on him. I think a lot about this because I'm a I'm a minority viewpoint in the academic world as well. I'm a free market, classical liberal, libertarian, whatever label you want to give it. And as it turns out, most academics don't hold that view. So people on quote my side, people like Milton Friedman or Julian Simon. Uh, they take a lot of abuse, uh, and you chronicle some of that. Uh, the other side, you can debate whether they're right or wrong, but they have the comfort of being sort of in the club. There's much more of a consensus that they're right, and you detail a number of debates that Simon's in where he was just savaged and called you know awful names, and he got into the habit. Maybe it came naturally to him calling him back. Um, so comment on that and comment on whether you – Having written what is a fairly, to me, even-handed book, uh, how have your colleagues responded to it? <laughs> well, it's too early to give a final answer on, uh, on on the on the response to that. Although I, I will say that Ehrlich thought the book was too balanced, so <laughs> so I guess in that sense he, uh, he congratulations that I'd gone too far. <laughs> I guess no. So maybe if both sides think it's too balanced, then maybe I ended up in the right place. Um, I, I think that the well, I mean, those are big, complicated questions around the the politics of academia and also the broader society. But I guess what I what I would actually make a, a larger statement going beyond the university, which is to say that I think that the the problem that Ehrlich and Simon's story uh, represents, and I think that it's characteristic of our our intellectual life in the country today, is the tendency of uh, uh, of both sides in a polarized country to uh, to n- to stay with the, stay with their own and uh, not listen very well to the viewpoints of the other side and to see uh, the genuine insights that exist in other ways of thinking about social uh, phenomena, social problems, 
and uh, and that it's it, there's not as much listening uh, and there's too much talking going on, I guess, in turn and and thinking about the and not enough kind of embracing of complexity of of the kind the real complexity of the problems that we face. And so, I mean, I think that group the group identity and the group support that uh, that both Ehrlich and Simon felt from both their sides uh, of, of this argument uh, is problematic, and, and we can see that much broadly right now with the climate change discussion. You know, it's a, a wide gulf between uh, different parts, uh, different different viewpoints, and a real inability to uh, to talk more pragmatically about how to address a, a major societal challenge. Yeah, the way that you phrase it reminds me, as an economist, that in general, it's much easier to get paid for talking than for listening. <laughs> so it is an inherent problem in the in the intellectual I think space. That's right. That uh, thoughtfulness. Being a good listener doesn't get you on yeah, the uh, doesn't right. get you on the Tonight Show. <laughs> and so, so let's close with this. You you talk in the book, and you're talking now about the value of nuance as opposed to I would I would say caricature. And both sides do tend to care of all these debates and economics and environmental issues. They caricature their opponents. It's good for fundraising. It's good for making you feel good about yourself and your team. Um, your book is in many ways a plea for something different. Uh, do you have any optimism about that? I don't. I don't. I don't see that. <laughs> I don't view this as a as a. You know, you point out we're a particularly polarized time. I'm not sure it's any different, really, than it's ever been. And in some ways, your book kind of proves that, right? The 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, not that much learning going on from one side from the other, whether whatever the issue is. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a teacher and academic, so I guess I'm uh, I'm optimistic about the possibilities for human development and uh, and for learning. So I, I will uh, remain optimistic about that. That even if it's just in a few few places, opening minds to uh, to listening to each other uh, uh, and trying to develop more complex viewpoints, that uh, that there will be opportunities for progress. And I think that there is a pragmatic. Uh, a pragmatic middle in the in in the United States, and not just sort of ideologically, but of in terms of uh, pe- people who want to get things done and 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 don't want to uh, think about problems uh, in in extreme in extreme ways, but are trying to figure out how to how to muddle through and and figure out solutions. And so I I, I think that uh, you know you could. S- one one way to look back at American history is to see uh, the extreme voices that have been been expressed and the difficulty in conversation. Another way is to look uh, at all of, at the way that the society has been able to evolve and adjust and adapt uh, and address problems as they've as they've arisen and and to and to to muddle through. And, and I think that that you know that both of those things uh, have some truth to them. And so so I uh, put the book out there in an optimistic. Uh, spirit and uh, hope that people uh, enjoy thinking about the thinking about the questions that it raises. My guest today has been Paul Sabin of Yale University. His book is called The Bet. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.